This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. There's a Facebook group where everybody that's on Facebook chats books, and we are currently reading advanced copies of books and chatting with the author's pre-publication. I recently added another early read. For April, we will be reading Linwood Barclay's new fabulous thriller, Take Your Breath Away, and meeting with him on Zoom. I am in the process of scheduling several more. Thanks to those that already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with David Cypress about What's So Funny, a cartoonist's memoir. David has been a staff cartoonist since 1998 for The New Yorker, where he has published nearly 700 cartoons. He lectures widely on cartooning, and his autobiographical writing has appeared frequently on NewYorker.com. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, David. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Cindy. I really enjoyed your book. I've always been a huge fan of New Yorker cartoons. So as soon as I saw this book, I knew I had to read it. And I'm so glad we're also getting to chat about it. Me too. Thank you. Well, why don't we start with you telling me a little bit about What's So Funny, a cartoonist memoir for those that won't have read it yet. What's So Funny is sort of the story of my life, starting with my growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And as such, it's the story also of my family, of my mother, my father, and my sister, and my changing relationships with them over time. At the same time, it's the story of my life as a cartoonist, my career, but most of all, my ideas, meditations, thoughts about the art of cartooning and creativity in general. And as such, uh, the book includes a lot of my cartoons which uh, I intersperse throughout the anecdotes and storytelling at points where they add insight, but mostly important points where a little touch of humor is necessary. Do you have a favorite of all of your cartoons? Wow, yes. There's a cartoon in the book of me, or a picture of me, drawn really well, talking to a really sloppily, messily rendered dog. And the me character is saying, bad drawing. 
And that's a great favorite of mine because um, it says a lot about drawing and art making. And uh, my experience when I first came on to The New Yorker, where uh, every time someone new comes on, there are always questions, well, is their drawing style really New Yorker? And so I went through a little of that at the beginning, and that inspired that cartoon. I was really interested with some of the processes for becoming a New Yorker cartoonist in terms of you talking about dropping off the cartoons on Tuesdays and that those that had their cartoons accepted were able to come on in and participate in meetings. But if you didn't yet, you just had to wait for your pickup, I guess, on Friday as to whether any of yours had been accepted or not. That all was very intriguing to me. I'm assuming these days, obviously, it's all sent digitally. But is it a similar process? Like what happens once you're accepted? Do you have weekly meetings? Do they ask you for certain types of cartoons? How does that work? Well, the process essentially has never changed. I think going back to 1925, the cartoonists, me in particular, submit a a batch of roughs every week. As you said, nowadays, it's email. When I first started, we used to go in in person. And from those roughs, the cartoon editor will select, hopefully, if you're lucky, one or two to pass on to David Remnick, the editor, who makes the final decision about what goes in the magazine. And that means that with all the people contributing, the cartoon editor is probably looking at hundreds of cartoons a week. Do they ever request types of cartoons or is it literally just submissions and they pick from the submissions? The latter. Okay. Yeah, there's very little coming to you from the editors. It's all what you hand in. Oh, that's so interesting. Hmm. I would have thought every once in a while they might ask for one, but I guess what happens is everybody drawing cartoons is tuned in with what's happening in the world and they're turning in timely ideas. And so there's really no need to ask. The key thing, the only thing that matters is, is it funny? And that's the, the only criteria that we try to stick to. The other thing I've often wondered is if the caption or the drawing comes first in a cartoon, and you do talk about this in your book, but I'd love to talk more about it in this interview in terms of how often one happens for you versus the other. Sometimes you talk a little bit in the book as well about having the drawing, but then taking a while to come up with the caption. So can you just talk about that whole process for you? Yeah. um, The answer to to the question of which comes first, it's sort of like, you know, a, a snarky answer would be the egg. It's like the chicken and the egg. Mostly those two things happen, in my case, together. Drawing, coming up with the idea, writing the caption, it all, the process is all pretty mixed up together a lot of the time. But some of the time, the drawing comes first. And I'll do a drawing, a particular drawing I love. Like I did a drawing years ago of two people, a a guy sitting at a bar with his dog and uh, talking to the bartender, and both the guy and the dog are completely covered with tattoos. I looked, I hung that up on my wall, and I looked at it, and I looked at it, couldn't come up with a caption, went out, got some lunch, drank a cup of coffee, came back, and boom, the caption popped into my head. The guy says to the bartender, I ran out of room. I love that cartoon. And in fact, I was just thinking about it a second ago when I was asking you about your favorites. Because if one's in the book, that's one of my top ones that I just totally laugh. That's a great one. Thank you. So that's how that happens. Other times, I, I talk in the book about something I call my cartoon brain, which is always on no matter what situation I'm in this conversation. For example, always there's a little part of my mind that's thinking, what's funny about this? Is there a cartoon here? And so 
a lot of my cartoons begin with stuff I've heard or experienced that give me an idea. And then I do the drawing and the caption at the same time. Every once in a while, there'll be a some phrase in the culture that really pops out at me that I hear over and over. And that's what, that's when they begin with words. Like another example would be for years ago, we used to hear all the time people talking about be in the moment, a kind of, you know, Eastern philosophy approach to things. And I did a cartoon of a guy sitting and uh, he's reading a book and the book says how to be in the moment. <laughs> and then another book on the desk, the next book is how to be in the moment after that. <laughs> That's when you hear something over and over that you just, it just says to you, there's got to be a cartoon about this. And once in a while, it's just, things just pop into my head unexpectedly when I'm least expecting it. And, uh, that's where a lot of the cartoons happen. And then, as I say, I do the drawing and the writing all at the same time. When they pop into your head like that, do you just madly try to get it down so that you don't forget it or it doesn't elude you later? Well, at my somewhat advanced age, it's always necessary to write everything down the minute I think of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm usually so excited that I can't wait to get back to my desk when those ideas happen, those are usually the best ones, the ones that sort of fly into your head when you're doing something else. And I'm usually so excited I have to run over here and, and do the drawing and finish it. You're like, I'll be back in a minute. I've got to get this down. Yeah, exactly. So you grew up in a family where emotions weren't really talked about and explanations weren't given. And it seems like you began to use cartoons to express yourself, to get your emotions out. Would you say that's right? I would say that's true from a very young age, and not just cartoons, but drawing itself. I say in the book that just holding a pen in my hand or a crayon when I was a kid and, and hitting a piece of paper just completely calmed me down. And the cartoons starting when I was a kid were always a way for me to process whatever I was feeling, whatever was happening, you know, when even the bad and difficult stuff, I've always found that my initial, my immediate reaction is to come up with a cartoon. It's just a way I've processed my life from the very beginning. Well, I think everybody has different ways of processing things and getting them out. And that's a wonderful way for you. It's something you enjoy already. And it does give you the opportunity to address whatever issue it is that you're trying to address. A absolutely. You know, I think that if if I thought about what most of my cartoons are about, one way or another, they're about my anxieties and worries about various things. And whenever I'm something scary or anxious making happens, as I say, my first response is, hmm, maybe I should make a cartoon about this. Well, and that's clearly worked well for you. I would say so, yeah. <laughs> well, your mother was a very anxious person and passed on a lot of anxiety to you. I have to say, as a mother of three kids, all teenagers, well, one's 20 and the other two are teenagers, that that was such a stressful part for me to read about because I think you do pass so much on to your children, either purposely or you know, not purposefully. And so the whole time I was reading that, I was like, oh, I hope I haven't done that to my children. I have to say that uh, in the course of writing this book, I found myself more and more forgiving my mother and my father for all that stuff. And, and getting, I got a better understanding of why and they uh, behave that way towards me. And uh, by the end, I really felt pretty good about 
both of them and the, and how hard they tried to do their best. Absolutely. I think definitely she was just wanting to make sure you were safe. And it just came out in a lot of ways that ended up stressing you out. But I, I yes, I mean, and I guess that's my point. Like I, I try to be the best mom I can, but then I worry what kinds of things am I instilling in my kids? But one of the questions I did have for you was whether this book was cathartic and you did sort of have some resolution and maybe feel more comfortable about your parents. And it sounds like you did. Absolutely. I did not expect that was going to happen. In fact, I had no idea what was going to happen when I started out because I'd never written anything really of any length before. But as the more I unearthed those memories and the more I looked at them and the more I talked about them in therapy, the closer I began to feel to all three members of my family. And by the end, I could honestly say that I felt closer to all three of them. Well, that's good. And I do think that is why in the end, people sometimes do write memoirs, even subconsciously, because they want to understand better what's happened. Yeah. And, and really, the, the journey is to understand oneself. I mean, I, I think at, by the end of this, of writing this book, I learned a lot about myself that I, I had never unearthed before, and including, for example, how important humor and cartoons were to me all through my life to help me deal with all the difficulties that came up, including difficulties with my parents and my sister. Well, one of the questions I had for you, and I know you heard it from from your father, but did you hear from people a lot, like, that's your job, drawing cartoons? And the only reason I ask this, not at all in a negative way, because it's a fabulous job, but I feel like even today in 2022, I sometimes get that. That's your job, reading books. It's kind of a frustrating question. And so I would assume you probably got the question too. And how do you respond to it? Well, I, I, the, that question, as I write about in the book, I think the person who asks me that question the most is myself. I, I was so conditioned by my upbringing from my immigrant father who had certain expectations of what I would grow up to be. And then I turned around and became this sort of silly, fun thing, a cartoonist. But I had all that residual guilt about it. So I constantly, and maybe even today somewhat, say to myself, well, is it a real job? I mean, are you really doing something important? My father at one point was saying things to me like, well, if you're having fun doing it, something's wrong. Uh, You shouldn't be having fun. You should be suffering for your work. And as silly as that sounds, I I heard it so much that it was it took a lifetime for me to extricate that from my from my consciousness. And so one of the things I do for example is I never I have never worked at home. I always had a separate space that I had to go to every day to do my work. Uh, so I have this studio which is about 15 minutes from my house. And every time I get up in the morning, get dressed and walk out the door, I feel like I'm going to the office. And it gives me a little bit of that security of feeling like I have a quote unquote real job. That's a little how I deal with the guilt about the silly profession. Well, I don't think it's a silly profession at all. I think it's wonderful. And it's something that I've admired for a very long time. I was just wondering if you get asked that very often. And I do think with respect to your dad, some of that is just a product of the era. I mean, I think, you know, many, many adults and parents were that way, thinking there were certain jobs that were acceptable and not really understanding that there were going to be all sorts of new jobs that would be coming down the pike that people would be taking. And I think we're in the midst of another time like that right now. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I just would like to say that in answer to what you're saying, people don't, what, what actually what people say to me is, wow, I wish I had your job. <laughs> well, um, I get that too. A lot of people, a lot of 
oddly men that I've encountered say, oh, I really wanted to be a cartoonist. You know, I, I, if this law school thing hadn't come up, I probably would have done that. And I get, I've gotten a lot of that over the years. Well, that's good. What do you hope your readers take away from your book? I think it's something we've, we've been talking about. I think it's that my experience in my life was that when life presented difficulties and challenges, my sense of humor was always my way of getting through those things. And that being creative, and especially in my case, being creative in a, in, with humor has always, is always a great way to deal with those challenges that life presents. And also, I just hope that people enjoy the stories because I, I think that storytelling is really important to me. And I, I think each, the book itself is uh, not so much a linear history as it is a series of stories. Each story, I think, kind of has a beginning, a middle, and an ending. And I just hope that people enjoy the storytelling. One of the things that stuck with me over and over is the number of places that have closed that you talked about. And I feel like that has really been the case in the last probably three to five years in New York City. The city's going through a change and so many things have closed. But even as I was reading your book, I was realizing some of that has always been the case, like your dad's business or Dino's, the restaurant, places that have been there for so long and they just don't don't continue. A- absolutely. And my book is in part about this city and the wonderful effect that this city has had on my life. And when I think about it, I think about a lot about those days before those places closed, not just the restaurant my parents loved, but things like every time my mother went shopping, she would walk down 79th Street and take a lift on Amsterdam. And first she'd go to the butcher, the butcher, you know, the floor of the butcher shop was covered with sawdust and Sig, the butcher, was joke around with my mother. And then we'd go to the fruit and vegetable stand next door and, uh, oh, need something at the drugstore. She'd go to the mom and pop drugstore after that. And that that was very much a kind of life that I loved as a kid, that that those things were available in a way that was friendly and, and open. And I do, I do regret that those, those have gone away. That it's no longer possible. I don't even. I think the first supermarket I remember was there was an A and P on Broadway, and it was a brand new thing. No, none of us had ever seen a supermarket before. So, anyway, that's that's my answer. We visit New York several times a year, even before my daughter was in college there. And where I first began to notice it was all the little delis. You know, for years and years, we would go from our hotel to like the mom and pop deli that was nearby, get some snacks, things like that, to have in our hotel room. And I would say definitely pre-COVID, we would start looking around and I realized there's hardly any of them left. It's just Walgreens and CVS and even Target now. And so that's where I started noticing it and kind of asking people and then realizing restaurants we'd been to for years weren't there anymore. And obviously some of that is the way it works and the nature of time. But it also seems like just like every other city, I guess, there's just so many more chains and so many less independent places. And, and on top of that... As sure as, of course, you know from the book world, one does one shopping sitting here in a chair looking at the computer. The whole notion of shopping, when you say it now, it just pretty much means going to Amazon or going somewhere on your internet to buy the book you want. Or the, I just bought a pair of winter boots the other day uh, online. I didn't even go to a store to try them on. So I think that that is a huge change as well. I think so too. And the ordering of food. 
And I've had several conversations with people actually on the airplane, like when we've been coming or going from New York and talking to people living there. And, you know, the idea that you can just have everything delivered to you versus going to a lot of those little places. Yeah. Although, as you, I'm sure you realize, especially these days, but I agree. And I love going to restaurants. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's always been one of my favorite things to do. I think I the first story in my book is the story of a story based in Gino's, the restaurant you mentioned before, where we used to go almost once a week throughout my childhood, and how I thought of my very first cartoon after a dinner at Gino's. And I I've always loved the rituals of of, of restaurants, and especially I'm I love food and food that's prepared by someone else in particular. You and me both. I'm not a big cook, so I definitely like food prepared by other people. And you have a really great cartoon in the book about that. Is it Vultures? I'm trying to remember that talk about being a foodie. Yeah. (laughs) It was still breathing. You're such a foodie. There we go. I loved that. Definitely you have a great sense of humor and it shows through in a lot of those cartoons. Thank you. I mean, it was really important to me to maintain a tone of humor throughout the book. Even when I was writing about stuff that wasn't funny at all, in fact, it was pretty devastating. And that was one of the great challenges of writing the book was how to write about that stuff without losing that tone that was so important to me. And that was a really interesting challenge. And you talk about that on a broader scale as well in the book, in terms of trying to write about humor in a cartoon after things like 9-11 or the Paris attack, Charlie Hebo. So I do think you're right. You can you can still do it, not have it be like, ha, 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 funny, but more like an important look at it through a different lens. Absolutely. I think that the more I did and have done political stuff and stuff about tragedies like that, what I've learned is that humor is not just a joke that you make at someone else's expense or you make fun of something. Part of The real key to humor, I think, is, and especially cartoons, is you you present your feelings about something and you present it in a way that's unexpected, but still you're talking about something that you feel like what I felt after 9-11, what I felt after the Paris bombings. You put that in a cartoon and what people's reaction is they laugh and they're also saying, wow, that's exactly how I feel about it. And so you sort of surprise them and connect to them at the same time. And I think that's really the key to cartooning about tragedies and difficulties that we face politically and stuff like that. You you try to connect to what people are feeling, but you do it by talking about what you're feeling. And over time and years of doing it, you begin to trust that your feelings are going to be acknowledged and recognized by your audience. Well, you write about that in the book as well that you realized over time that when you put your own thoughts and personal beliefs or feelings or whatever it is into your cartoon, that people respond the best to those. Absolutely. I learned that as a kid when I, uh, I had one experience of doing stand-up comedy in, in high school. I thought that was going to be what I wanted to do. And what I learned from that was all the jokes were just about what I was experiencing as a 16-year-old teenager, you know, hearing about sex in the playground or being forced to wear certain kind of clothes by my mother or stuff like that. And I discovered that all 700 boys in the audience loved and laughed. And I thought, wow, that's all I'll ever have to do is just think about my experience and what's funny to me. 
and put it out there and people will laugh. Well, people are happy to see themselves expressed that way. Yes, absolutely. Now, I'm all about book covers. I'm assuming you drew your cover. Is that right? Yeah, that's a family photograph. And then I did the drawing around it. I did a really nice collaboration with the designer. And that was really a fun thing to do. I liked that the photograph was talked about in the book as well. Yeah, I think that photograph really oddly seemed to capture all four of us, uh, something about each of us, the way my father is standing, the way my mother is smiling, my sister's kind of smirking, and me pointing a gun <laughs> at, at uh, whoever was taking the picture, I guess. It, it, each of those said something about each of us uh, pretty clearly. So did you ask them about drawing the cover? Did they ask you? How did that come about? I didn't even didn't even occur to me that that was a possibility. I always knew I wanted that photograph on the cover. I think it it's just a really arresting photograph. And it was the designer who suggested that I start drawing the cityscape around it. And it, it took a while to get it right, but I was really pleased in the end in how it turned out. And then they used um, some of the little drawings in the table of contents in the book as well. So I, it was a kind of slow evolving process and it was really fun to do. I bet it was. I was very excited to read your book because I have loved New Yorker cartoons forever, as I mentioned. But what surprised me was that having gone through some issues with my own parents in recent times, how much that portion of the story resonated with me. My father has Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And my mom was always very healthy, but in September, um, she had a stroke and passed away to the surprise of all of us. And so it was one of those things like your dad talked about how he always thought he would go first and your mom would be there. And, you know, I think everyone where we are here thought that. And it was such a shock to all of us, particularly my father, to try to reevaluate and I don't know what the right word is, even just adjust to our new normal. And so that part also resonated with me. Oh, thank you. That part is really important to me. I was so interested in my father's reaction because he, more and more as time went on, he really tried to control life and control the changes that happened and avoid upset any way he could. And he he really wasn't planning for my mother to die before. (laughs) And uh, that, I think that made him angry, actually. Our reactions were a little different just because I think my mom was the one that was really struggling with my dad's disease and sort of had her head in the sand. And we'd had many conversations, but yours went better than mine did in terms of getting help in their household. Like I never could get them to get any help until my mom passed away. So I think she just kept thinking this will all go away if I don't deal with it. So maybe eventually I will come to better terms with it. But I do think for her trying to deal with his disease was just almost impossible. So sometimes maybe things work the way they're supposed to, even though it's unpleasant. I don't know anybody for whom that getting help thing hasn't been a real struggle. It's, it's always been, it's a real hard thing for everybody, all my friends and their aging parents. There's always resistance. It's interesting because I just was so baffled by it. And I was like, you clearly need help. You know, why can't we get help? But we just never could until she passed away. And now he has to have help and he understands that. But I think it was sort of the same thing your parents voice. They just didn't really want someone else in the home. And I think my mom just didn't want somebody in there knowing, you know, potentially that she herself was having some health issues. Absolutely. It was the same with me. Exactly. And I think it's a generational thing. I think that, you know, these 
people that are a lot older now, like they just weren't used to that idea of having help. And I feel like for us, maybe it's a more common thing now. I, I think I did. I have a cartoon in the book where um, there's a, a father, I think, explaining to the kid, um, when you're young, we're in charge. Yes. We're old, you're in charge. And everything in between is a struggle for, you know, a, a constant struggle. And I think that's really true. I felt it was so true. That was one of those times where I'm like, I completely identify with that. I'm going to have to make a copy of this and put it above my desk because that's exactly right. The tables turn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all wind up parenting our parents to a certain extent, which just is a mind blower if you think about it, <laughs> you know, and it's it's not even my father never became senile or forgetful or anything, but still I need to take, I needed to take him by the hand and tell him what he had to do and over and over until he finally listened. Yeah. It's not a lot of fun on that note, which really isn't connected at all, but I loved all your grim reaper ones. And I love this one of Jesus holding or a sign. That's a guy dressed up looking like Jesus where it says the end is near. And the person says, can you be more specific for some reason? All of those completely tickled me. Thank you. That's sort of back to what we were talking about before. I, I talk in the ki- in the in the book about a little toy I had as a kid that my mother bought me at the Metropolitan Museum of Art when we went to see the King Tut exhibit, and it's a it was a little toy coffin and a little toy mummy. They were magnified, and when you hold the mummy away from the coffin, just a little bit away, it would fly back into the coffin with a very satisfying click. And as a kid, I recognized okay, making something funny out of something really scary. And I think that the Grim Reaper cartoons are, you know, what's scarier than the Grim Reaper and your fears and anxieties about the Grim Reaper's role in your life. And that's what's so great about making Grim Reaper cartoons is that you you take something really scary and turn it into something funny. And so I, I've done, I don't know, scores of Grim Reaper cartoons. Uh, I think my favorite is the one where the where the guy is saying, the Grim Reapers appears at his desk and the guy is saying, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I, I can't accomplish anything without a deadline. <laughs> I like the save the date one. Oh, yeah, that that too. Yeah. I could chat all day about your cartoons. I love them. And I'm going to go back and find a bunch more. But we probably can't do that. So before we wrap up, can you tell me what you've read recently that you really liked? Okay, well, the, the secret for me is that I've switched over 50% to audiobooks, which means I read all the time. I read when I'm washing dishes. I read when I'm cooking. I read when I ride the subway. So I've read a lot of books in the past year or two. And um, I've divided my four into four categories. First, as a writer of a memoir, the memoir that really was important to me and that I learned the most from is called The Pigeon Tunnel by John le Carré, the late John le Carré, who is my favorite writer overall. And it's a really interesting memoir And he says something that really caught my attention and gave me permission to write my book the way I wanted. And he says in the introduction, pure memory is as slippery as a wet bar of soap. And what he meant by that was he was going to write a memoir the way he remembered things. They may not be fact checkable. They may not be exactly accurate, but it's really important. It's not so much that, but what the way you remember things says about you. And that was great for me because I was started off, I was worried, you know, what if I got this wrong? What if this never happened the way I said? And reading that book kind of liberated me from that worry. 
The second category, I, I talk a lot in my book about my love of history. And I've just finished a terrific history book by Dan Jones called Powers and Thrones, which is a history of the Middle Ages from the fall of Rome through the Renaissance. And what's great about it is, and what's what makes a really good history book is he's a terrific storyteller because history really is storytelling in the end. And so you're you're really entertained and you're learning a lot at the same time. Then my favorite novel that I've read of late is The Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. It's just a terrific book about Russia. And Russia is also another thing that's important to me. And I thought it was a great novel. And then finally, I consume an enormous amount of detective fiction. And I especially love when detective fiction is combined with food. And there's a series of books by Martin Walker called Bruno Chief of Police. There's about 10 or 12 of them. And I've read through all of them. And what's great is when Bruno, the chief of police, comes into his kitchen and starts cooking his signature omelet with truffles. And along with that, pours himself a nice crisp glass of the local white wine. I just, I, I want to dive into the book and sit down and consume that omelet with him. So all of those, that whole series is just really terrific. So those are my four uh, suggestions. That Martin Walker series is one of my favorites. I just absolutely love it. And I've met him a couple of times when he's come to the bookstore when I used to work at Murder by the Book here in Houston. And I just absolutely love that series. I'm so glad to hear that. I just think they're terrific. I really do. They really are. So, well, David, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. This was such an interesting conversation, and I'm thrilled we got to talk. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Cindy. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, Please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.